Hey, everybody. Welcome to SC with DA. We are on chapter 10 today of our book, Steps to Christ. And it's a little book, but as we're learning, it packs a powerful punch. And as we'll see in today's chapter, a beautiful punch. So let me welcome a few people here. Hello, Annie. Hello, foot care nurses. Hello, Marquita. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Mario, Ollie, Joseph, Fletcher, Jari, Life of Dr. J. Oh, that's a tough one. G-I-S-J-A says, hola. Well, hola back to you. Hello, Joanne. Hello, Deb. Hello, Holmes Home. All right. Greetings, everybody. Hello, Renee. Great to see you. Love to you and the boys, all three of your boys, including your husband, of course. Hey, Victor, did you take a cold shower this morning? Tell the truth. Tell the truth. If you were not with us yesterday, I was razzing Victor about taking cold showers. Well, I, I guess I was razzing everybody about it. Hello, Christy. Hello, Cece. Hello, Stan the Man Music. Oh, I like that. Stone Doctor NYC. <laughs> Megan says, hello from the sauna, a.k.a. the summer in the subtropics. Hello, Gangle. Hello, Terrible Terry. Hello, Chronic Crystal. Hello. Oh, no, sorry. Hola. Torito, 2900, Lisa, Wayne, Five Carsons 05, James. All right. Yeah, come on, give us an update, Victor. We're all waiting to see. Did you take a cold shower this morning or not? Oh, S. Cruz says, took a cold shower for 10 seconds. Somebody says, is Ty Gibson hiding there? No, no, he's not hiding here. He's in Tennessee, so far as I know. Hello, Josie. Hello, Chuck. Hello, Rhonda. Deborah says, I loved the sermon because of those who sat. That was a great sermon. I give all the glory to God for that sermon. That was a real blessing. I only preached that sermon probably two times ever, maybe three. I think I only preached it twice, though. Hello, toast salami. Cold shower today. Okay, you notice Victor's gone quiet. Nothing, nothing from him. So he probably did not take the cold shower. That's all right. Oh, wait. Victor Mills, he says, that sermon changed my life. Okay, maybe I missed. Somebody says I took a three-minute cold shower. Wow, I'm so impressed. Good for you. Kendra says, I remember that sermon. All right, a lot of people saying they take cold showers. That's great news. All right, I hope everybody had a wonderful day. I had a, a, a great day today, relaxing, enjoyable, and I loved this chapter. I'll be totally honest. I read this chapter this morning, and then I read it a couple times this afternoon, and then I had time to reread it again this evening. And so our chapter today, chapter 10, is titled A Knowledge of God, and I feel like I was just, this chapter was just kind of my day today. It was a relaxing day. It was a beautiful day. I, I even had time, about an hour actually, to speak to one of my dear friends from New Zealand, Adrian, and uh, we caught up on the phone and talked about life and it was, I've had a wonderful day, an absolutely wonderful day. It's cold here. Actually had kind of a, a, a sad moment today. This morning, Violetta and I went to uh, get our IDs sort of verified for TSA pre-check, which here in the United States allows you to be what's called a known traveler, and then you can go through the shorter security lines. Anyway, the lady there that was helping us, a lovely, lovely lady, and 
as per usual with me, I just struck up a conversation with her and was asking her about her life and how long she'd been doing this. And and she, I just loved her. As soon as I connected with her, I was like, I like this lady. I could be great friends with her. And she told Violetta and I that she was taking care, you know, in the course of conversation, she said she'd been taking care of her grandson. His name was Mike. And I was like, oh, you know, why are you taking care of your grandson? And it was a really positive, upbeat conversation back and forth. And then she says, his mother died. And I said, I'm so sorry, your, your daughter passed away and then now you're raising your grandchild? And she said, yeah, his, his mother passed away at the age of 35 um, last year from COVID. And I said, that, that is just so terrible. Tell me that story. And so she told me the story. And unfortunately, there was a significant hospital and, and medical error, it sounds like. I mean, based on the story that she told me, it sounds like it was a really unfortunate situation. But she was, she had a peace in her. I didn't ask her right out if she was a Christian, but she did make a couple biblical references. And it was just a lovely conversation. But but as we were talking and I just thought there's just so much pain in the world, and and I expressed my sincere condolences, and we talked about what it was like to be, you know, in, you know, she wasn't old, she was probably 50, probably about my age, actually, but to be raising your grandchild, and your, uh, she had three daughters, and this was her um, oldest that had passed away, and it was just, it just hit me that that the world is a pain-filled world. Here we were having this pleasant wonderful back and forth conversation, catching up. And then just right in the middle of that conversation, she announces that she's taking care of her grandson. I think, oh, well, maybe somebody's on vacation. Oh, no, no, nobody's on vacation. Her daughter died. And that's the world we live in. In in one moment, it's beauty and it's happiness and it's laughter and the birds are singing. And then in the next moment, like as many of you know, uh, just, I guess, four days ago now, one of my close, my closest childhood and teenage friend was killed at the age of 51 when a branch fell and struck him. I actually put a picture of him up on my Facebook page, my Instagram page, and uh, I think even on Twitter as well. His name was Jed. And you can just tell, several people commented. They said, man, he has a great smile. He always had that smile. Even when back when we were kind of rowdy teenagers, though he was never very rowdy, he always had and, and I'm not just, you know, sort of eulogizing here, memorializing him. He always had a very angelic face and a very congenial, inviting, and angelic smile. And you can see it in the Instagram post. I mean, he was a beautiful person, beautiful inside and out. And that's actually one of the things that we're going to talk about in today's chapter, because one of my favorite lines, in fact, my favorite line in today's chapter, I'll just read it here. It's on page 115, 85 of the original. God is a lover of the beautiful. God is a lover of the beautiful, which makes so much sense, of course, since he is the creator of beauty. He is the inventor of beauty. He is the epitome of beauty. And so, yeah, I've, I've had a good day today, but there was that little, that little sad moment where just in the middle of an otherwise wonderful back and forth, friendly conversation, you can just learn that somebody's daughter has died and you're raising a grandchild and that's the world we live in. We live in a pain-filled, struggle-filled world that is a war zone. It looks like a war zone because it is a war zone, to quote uh, Gregory Boyd, the theologian. All right, so welcome everybody. So glad you're here. Let's start with prayer. I'm all alone tonight. 
No Ty, no Elise, no Nathan, but tomorrow night, as I've mentioned, we have a, a bit of a mystery guest. And as I've mentioned before, this guest is a mystery to me, uh, though I did speak to them on the phone today. Um, but uh, it's going to be great. I, I'm actually totally looking forward to it. You'll get to hear more about that story tomorrow. Tomorrow's chapter is, I think, the power of prayer or the privilege of prayer. And so looking forward to what they have to share. And so, but tonight we're alone. Let's get into chapter 10. Start with prayer. So glad you all are tuned in. Father in heaven, what a world we live in. Simultaneously, a world full of beauty and of blight, of sadness and of joy. And I pray that uh, you will be with this dear sister that uh, Violet and I spent some time with today. Lord, she had such a sweetness about her. I was just immediately drawn to her. And then my soul was crushed within me to hear her talk about the raising of her, her grandchild under these circumstances. And I want to pray for young Mike. Lord, I don't know him. I will likely never meet him. But in the hereafter, Father, we will have opportunity to meet all of those people that are redeemed. And I pray that Mike is among them. And I'm sure by your grace that he will be. Father, please be with this young boy. Protect him raise him up, help him not to have the seeds of bitterness in his heart, but of trust and of peace, and help his grandmother and grandfather just to raise him. Father, that's not going to be easy. They're in their later years, and he's quite young and energetic. So, Father, just be with this family. I don't even know their last names, but I just pray that you would be close to them and with all of those on the earth that are hurting. Father, we just humble ourselves before you right now, and we are aware that to us, praying for millions or even billions of people that are hurting. just seems like an impossibility. But Father, you, with the resources of omnipotence and omniscience, Lord, this to us is like just asking you about one person because you know them all and you know them perfectly. Father, tonight, as we talk about chapter 10, a knowledge of God, this is what we need, an accurate knowledge, a true knowledge of who you are and how beautiful you are. And Father, you long to communicate that to us. And so the prayer of my heart is that tonight that we would be uplifted, that we would be encouraged, no matter what season or situation each of us is in, may tonight be a little oasis, a little respite from the pain and craziness of the world. Bless us now as we spend time with you. May you spend time with us by your Spirit, and we know you will, because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in chapter 10, A Knowledge of God. And this was a shortish chapter, but a really, I found this to be a very encouraging peace-filled, beautiful chapter, and I'm going to just kind of start by reading here in paragraph one, as we often do, and that gets us rolling. I hope you all read this chapter today. It was a, a real winner. Oh, by the way, just a quick update. Per yesterday's conversation with Nathan Cranson, and, you know, I was going back and forth on my word. I put up a brief little post on my Instagram story today that I did decide to go with the word flow over the word joy. I think the word joy was a great word for yesterday's chapter. The chapter opens with joy and closes with joy. So I love that word. But I actually went back today and carefully read through chapter nine. And not only does she use the word flow, I think twice and then flowing once. Yeah, that's right. Twice in the first paragraph, she uses the word flow. And then in the third paragraph, she uses the word flowing. I actually went through and identified, let me see if I can count them here quickly. Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Wow. Seven additional times where even though the word flow was not used expressly, 
the idea of flowing, of, of God's love and God's goodness flowing through us, it, it's a great word. And I also really like the idea of a flow state. And for those of you that are familiar with that, it's the idea when something just becomes so second nature to you that it's just happening almost effortlessly. And I really like that for yesterday's chapter, The Work and the Life, that when Christ is in us by his spirit, that, that witnessing and ministering and, and just we, we see that instant connection, as we talked about with Elise, across the synapse, just reflexively, immediately. It just flows through us, to us, through us, and out of us. And I really loved that point that Nathan brought up about the silt. When God is flowing through us and to us, to us, through us, and out of us, it gets rid of the silt, the selfishness, the sin, the all of the things that bind us to this world. So I went with the word flow, and I think it's a great word. And I remember several people yesterday, that was their word as well. So thank you, Nathan, for coming on. And I love that idea. I want to be in a flow state in my discipleship. I just want it to be natural. I just want it to occur in the same way that when I'm climbing, it just occurs. Or, you know, if you've learned to ride a bike, you know, you just you get to the place where you can just ride a bike and you're not even thinking about what you're doing. You're just riding a bike. It's just what you do. And I want that same kind of flow state to be so native, so natural, that my life is the life of a disciple, of a student, of a pupil. And so I love that idea of flow. All right, so let's get to today's chapter. Start reading in paragraph one. Many are the ways in which God is seeking to make himself known to us and bring us into communion with him. Nature speaks to our senses without ceasing. The open heart will be impressed with the love and glory of God as revealed through the works of his hands. The listening ear, that's key, not just the ear, but the listening ear can hear and understand the communications of God through the things of nature. The green fields, the lofty trees, the buds and flowers, the passing cloud, the falling rain, the babbling brook, the glories of heaven, the glories of the heavens speak to our hearts and invite us to become acquainted with him who made them all. And I really like the use of that word invite there. They invite us. They don't compel us. They don't force us. They don't demand. They don't command. We're invited by nature. So if you thought to yourself, this has that kind of chapter one feel, right? This sounds a whole lot like the very first chapter, first paragraph of the book. Let me just go remind you of that. Nature and revelation alike testify of God's love. Our Father in heaven is the source of life and of wisdom and of joy. Look at the wonderful, beautiful things of nature. Think of their marvelous adaptation to the needs and happiness not only of man, but of all living creatures, the sunshine and the rain that gladden and refresh the earth, the hills, the seas, the plains, all speak to us of the Creator's love. It is God who supplies the daily needs of all his creatures. Okay, this has that same feel. So the invitation here, hearkening back to chapter one, is to look at the things of nature. And man, she makes a couple fantastic points about this. We're going to get to them momentarily. But she hints at them right there in paragraph one, where she says, the listening ear can hear and understand. And that has that whole motif that Jesus often utilized in the Gospels and also in the book of Revelation. He that has an ear, let him hear. And you can just imagine humorously, you know, people checking, oh yeah, I got, I've got ears. Yeah, but that's not what Jesus means. Jesus does not mean, do you have the auditory capability of listening to the sound vibrations that are being transmitted into your inner ear? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, are you listening to what I'm saying? And the invitation here is to look at nature, to listen to nature, and if we have a listening ear, we can hear and understand the communications of God through the things of nature. And man, she's going to make a bombshell point about that momentarily, but I'm going to just keep reading on here. 
She then goes on to say in the next paragraph that basically Jesus tied up many of his teachings with the things of nature, right? The, the farming lifestyle and the shepherding lifestyle and all of these sort of, and, and even trees and, and figs and, and a lot of sort of natural things. It's the reason that, by the way, uh, in our Christ Object Lessons book by Types and Symbols, right? We'll go through this in the future. And I've mentioned that all of the, the um, three books in the Light and Life collection have something that sort of communicates in 12 lines. And you can see here, here's 12 lines. It's also embossed on the cover. But the idea here with these lines is that they're supposed to be like grass or wheat or something that's grown because, as Types and Symbols, I think, correctly observed, so many of the teachings of Jesus were about things in nature. And that's the point that Ellen White's making here, right? Like, look to nature and don't just see nature as an end in itself, but nature as an expression of the love of God. God is speaking to us through all of those things there, the lofty trees, the green fields, the buds and flowers, the passing cloud, the falling rain, the babbling brook, the glories of the heavens, and I would say the mountains. She doesn't mention the mountains here expressly, but for me, I've, I've always had that John Muir-esque thing going on. The mountains are calling and I must go. So in, in all of nature, and this is coming from somebody that lived right next to the ocean, like literally a stone's throw away from the ocean, and then a little bit further away from the ocean in Australia for seven years. Like, like I could be to the ocean in no time. I used to be able, I lived in one house where I could just walk to the ocean. I love the ocean. I think the ocean is wonderful. And I used to say, oh, 50% ocean, 50% mountains. I'm not sure too hard to make a decision. Now, having lived right next to the ocean for seven years and loved it, for me, it's the mountains. I love the ocean and I love to visit the ocean, but if I'm going to pick a place to live, that's my home. That's where I'm settling down. And I have to choose between the ocean and the mountains. Now, some places you don't have to choose. I was talking to my friend today on the phone from New Zealand. He lives in a beautiful place on the South Island of New Zealand on the East Coast called Kaikoura. And Kaikoura has this most beautiful ocean there, uh, the Pacific Ocean, South Pacific, and then also giant mountains that just rise right out of the sea. So some places you don't have to choose. But if I'm forced to choose the thing in nature that speaks to me most about God's goodness and God's beauty and God's love and God's grandeur and God's power, for me, that's the mountains. Okay, let's, let's go now to, to paragraph three. God would have his children appreciate his works and delight in the simple, quiet beauty with which he has adorned our earthly home. And then here, this is the line that I thought was the best line in the whole chapter. He is a lover of the beautiful. And I underlined that already, but I'm just going to highlight that now. He is a lover of the beautiful, and above all, that is outwardly attractive, he loves the beauty of character. Amen. Because the beauty of character is voluntary. When we choose to model our lives after Jesus' life and let him do in us and through us the work that he wants to do to recreate, to bring us back to God's creational intent, it's so beautiful to him, not just aesthetically, but because this is something that we are voluntarily choosing to do in the same way that a parent looks upon the, the free will decisions that their children are making, those decisions that are good and beautiful and kind and honorable and honest, and we say, I'm... I'm so proud. You're, you're far more proud of that than if your son is tall or your daughter is, you know, beautiful or that they have lovely hair or large muscles, whatever. Those things aren't bad, but any parent would take sort of beauty of character over aesthetic beauty any day of the week. And that same sort of, when your children are voluntarily living in harmony with God and in harmony with his will, that same joy that you feel as a parent is the joy that God feels, but even more so. And that's the point. 
Above all that is outwardly attractive, he loves beauty of character. He would have us cultivate purity and simplicity, the quiet graces of the flowers. I like that. Very poetic. And I even wrote here, the quiet graces of the flowers and the birds. <laughs> As you know, I'm not only a lover of the mountains, but I'm a big lover of birds. And so I just really like that. Then next paragraph, let's keep reading because she actually talks about a little bird in the next paragraph. If we will but listen, ah, that's just like paragraph one, a listening ear. If we will but listen, God's created works will teach us precious lessons of obedience and trust from the stars that in their trackless course courses, let me read that again, from the stars that in their trackless courses through space, yeah, follow him from age to age, their appointed path, down to the minutest atom, the things of nature obey the creator's will. So there's obedience. And God cares for everything and sustains everything that he has created. Amen. He who upholds the unnumbered worlds throughout immensity at the same time cares for the wants of the little brown sparrow. Oh, I like that. I really like that. In, in the birding world, there are about 10,000 species of birds in the world. And so far, my wife and I have seen almost 2,000 of those species. I think we're hovering around 1,800. And many birds are just stunningly attractive. They're beautiful. They're unmistakable. You just look at them and you say, that's a resplendent quetzal. You look at it and say, that's a rainbow lorikeet. But there are a lot of birds that are sort of nondescript. And many of those birds are in families like the wren family or the sparrow family. And birders will sometimes humorously and even a little bit dismissively refer to these small brown birds, these nondescript brown birds that are often sort of skulking around in the, the, the brush or in the thickets. We refer to them as LBJs. And if there's a birder out there, you know what that means. LBJ means little brown jobs. Right? You weren't quite sure what it was. Was it a grasshopper sparrow? Was it a henslow sparrow? Was it a five-stripe? You don't know what sparrow it was, but you just say oh, it was an LBJ. Right? But God is attentive even to the LBJs. Right? The little brown, we say little brown jobs. Here she says the little brown sparrows that sings its humble song without fear when men go forth to their daily toil as they engage in prayer, when they lie down at night, when they rise in the morning. And I love this, by the way. I'm going to go back and read this even more carefully because I thought this was so beautiful. Just go back a little bit, beginning of that sentence. When men and women go forth to their daily toil, as when they engage in prayer, when they lie down at night, when they rise in the morning, when the rich man feasts in his palace, or when the poor man gathers his children around the scanty board, each is tenderly watched by the heavenly Father. No tears are shed that God does not notice. There is no smile that he does not mark. And, and you know what I love about that is that you know, today there's kind of a saying that uh, a lot of the young kids will say, they'll say, no judgment, right? They'll say something, no judgment. And what I really like about that is that she she talks about the rich man and then she talks about the poor man, but she doesn't apply any judgment to it. She just says that God is equally attuned to all of these things. The, the rich man feasting in his palace, that man or woman is the apple of God's eye. There is no crime in being a rich person. The, the Bible is filled with people who were fantastically rich. Abraham was a rich man. Job was a rich man, right? Many, uh, we, we know, for example, that uh, Nicodemus was a, a wealthy man, and, and the Bible's filled with stories of people that had wealth. Solomon, to, you know, to, to state the obvious. So, so I just love the fact that she doesn't even attach a moral component to the wealthy versus the poor. She just says, oh, God, oh, here's a wealthy man in his palace eating well. God is attentive. He is God's son. She is God's daughter. Oh, and here's a, 
a poorer family that's sort of gathering around their food. My, my father-in-law, Violetta's father, he jokes, and I think he's actually telling the truth, that he was raised as one of eight children, and they had one bowl in their family with eight spoons. <laughs> so one bowl and eight spoons growing up in Romania. So, the, so mom would come, and she sets the bowl down in the middle of the table, and the, the quickest gets the most, right? <laughs> one bowl, eight spoons. So, so, but God is attentive. The, the story I was telling you about earlier today, about this beautiful lady that I met, and her grandson, God is attentive to that situation. He is equally attentive. He doesn't pay more attention to the Elon Musks and the Bill Gates and the Steve Jobs, or Steve Jobs has passed away, but the, the Tim Cooks of the world. He doesn't pay more attention to them, and he doesn't pay less attention to the person that's totally poor and down and out on their luck and struggling. I, I just thought that was so beautiful. And then she says that there's not a tear that he doesn't notice, and not a smile that he doesn't mark. I mean, this is just so wholesome. It's so beautiful. And we live in a world right now where wholesome is considered passe, right? Like, wholesome is, Mr. Rogers is passe. Norman Rockwell is passe. But I tell you, there's a lot of beauty in just appreciating simple things. As Ellen White says, the quiet graces of the flowers. We actually could use a lot more wholesome, old-fashioned, even traditional values. And I'm not talking about going back, you know, the, the sort of um, old days. Uh, how do they sometimes refer to that? The, the, uh, the good old days. And for many people, the good old days were not the good old days. They were the rough old days. But, but when life was slower and simpler and we weren't continually distracted by a thousand electronic devices and a thousand screens and a million things clamoring for our attention. It just allowed the pace of life to slow down a little bit. And you could be attentive with that listening ear to see the beauty of a, of a robin gathering nesting material for its nest. You could, you could just listen for the cicadas in the trees. And when life was a little slower and a little more beautiful, it just, it was better. Let's be honest. It was better in many ways. And so I just love this here. God is attentive to the stars and the trackless course of the solar system and beyond. And he is attentive even to the little brown sparrow. There's not a tear that falls that he doesn't notice and not a smile that he doesn't mark. Beautiful. So encouraging. And then we encounter this great promise. And everything that I just said there as sort of an expansion of what Ellen White says, listen to what she says here. This is one of the great promises in the whole book up to this point. Paragraph begins... If we would but fully believe this, page 116, 86, 87 of the original, I think this is one of the most beautiful promises. Listen to this. If we would but fully believe this, all undue anxieties would be dismissed. Our lives would not be so filled with disappointment as now, for everything, whether great or small, would be left in the hands of God, who is not perplexed by the multiplicity of cares or overwhelmed by their weight, we should then enjoy a rest of soul to which many have long been strangers. Wow. First of all, that's incredible writing. And number two, what a promise. I mean, look at the language there. Anxieties, disappointment, multiplicity of cares. She contrasts all of that with a rest of soul. Well, how do we get this rest of soul? She says, just believe what I just wrote. Just, just believe that. Just, just right now, friends, in, in whatever situation you're in, whatever circumstance you're in, you might be watching this on your computer, you might be watching this on your phone, you might be watching this on an iPad, just right now in this moment, just tell yourself 
that God is attentive to the little brown sparrows. Tell yourself that a tear has never fallen down a cheek that God did not notice. Tell yourself that God has never seen a smile, a friendly, congenial smile, and marked it, that, that there's never been one that God has not marked. And then tell yourself that God knows the ways of the solar system and the entire universe. And just, just tell yourself that, believe that, rest in that. And when you do that, something happens. Like literally something begins to happen in the brain because you realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. My life might seem impossibly difficult or even overwhelming to me at times, but God's got this. God has got this. And when you do that, it just allows you to just shake off all of that, as she calls, undue anxiety and disappointment and the multiplicity of cares. Feel that right now. It doesn't mean that life doesn't have its difficulties. I saw somebody today, they wrote and said, and I thought this was really cute. They said, the, the Christian faith is not, how did they say that? The Christian faith is not, um, oh, I, 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 I don't want to misquote it because it was too good. But basically the idea is there's not the promise of everything going exactly as you hoped and expected, but there is the promise. I know one quick saying I can throw out there is that God did not promise smooth sailing, but a safe landing. And I, I like that. It's platitudinous, yes. It's wholesome, yes. But it's true. And, and to be honest, I'm at a point in my life right now where I just am appreciative of wholesome things, true things, simple things, quiet things, beautiful things. And if we could just embrace God's bigness, God's beauty, all of a sudden, undue anxieties and disappointments and the cares of this modern world just become, they don't disappear, but they're contextualized against the backdrop of that grand and glorious future, which is exactly where she goes. It's, it's exactly where she goes. She goes and starts talking about, let your imagination run wild, is basically what she said. She says, you see the things of nature here. You've been to Yosemite National Park, maybe, or you've seen a beautiful sunset, or you've snorkeled uh, in, in Hawaii or the Caribbean or the Great Barrier Reef. You've seen these beautiful things. Now, she says, just, just open the door and let your imagination roam and run wild. Watch what she does here. As your senses delight in the attractive loveliness of the earth, think of the world that is to come, that shall never know the blight of sin and death, where the face of nature will no more wear the shadow of the curse. Let your imagination picture the home of the saved and remember that it will be more glorious than your brightest imagination can portray. Woo! I'm getting excited here. In the very gifts of God in nature, we see but the faintest gleaming of his glory. Wow! And then she quotes 1 Corinthians 2, 9, eye has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. I like this. Look at nature. Let your undue anxieties wash away. Let your disappointments wash away. Now, as you're looking at nature, don't just look at nature as an end in itself. Allow your mind to be transported to the eternal future. And the most beautiful thing that you can imagine, she says, that is just the faintest gleaming of glory that awaits. Okay, now we're getting some. Now Now we're getting to the place where we can say with the Apostle Paul that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. It's not that life isn't hard, and it's not that cancer diagnoses aren't terrible, and it's not that a, a tree branch falling on your 51-year-old friend and killing him instantly isn't tragic. It is tragic. But there's the resurrection. There's the hope of the future. There's the, the, the victory and the triumph that Jesus has already achieved over sin, over death, over Satan. And so, yes, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is 
working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Wow, this is a great, encouraging chapter. Okay, and then now to me, this next paragraph was maybe my favorite paragraph in the whole thing. And as a longtime bird watcher, Violet and I started birding the year we were married, 1999. So we've been birders now for almost 25 years. And I tell you, we've been on birding trips and we've spent time with, with birders because when you meet birders, you just connect. And I'll tell you, as a Christian birder, as, as a birder who believes in creation and who believes in the God of Scripture and, and who sees not just the beauty of the bird and then imagine some you know, non-superintended uh, evolutionary process whereby a resplendent Quetzal came to be, but we see the creative handiwork of God the, the, a tapestry, a painting, the iridescence of the hummingbird, the loud call of the uh, Kurawong in Australia, or the beautiful melodic call of the, of the Swainson's thrush. I mean, we, we not only see the thing like any naturalist or poet does, we see the, the, the creator behind the thing, the beauty behind the thing. So there's lowercase beauty, B, and then there's uppercase beauty, capital B, and that's what she does. And man, I am so resonant with this. In my paragraph, in the margin here, I literally wrote this a thousand times over. This. The poet and, natu the, poet and the naturalist have many things to say about nature. True. That's true. But it is the Christian who enjoys the beauty of the earth with the highest appreciation because he or she recognizes his father's handiwork and perceives his love in flower and shrub and tree. Exactly. I have had this exact thought so many times when we have been in a beautiful situation backpacking or we've uh, caught a beautiful trout. I mean, the trout are some of the most beautiful creatures in the world. Have you ever seen a beautiful brown trout? Have you ever seen a brook trout? I mean, have you ever seen a golden trout? I mean, these are some of the most beautiful creatures in the world. Have you ever seen a resplendent quetzal or a uh, uh, you know, some of the most beautiful birds that we would see in Australia, like a, a, a fairy wren. I mean, you don't just see the thing. You see, wow, God is a painter. God is a creator. God is amazing. So you, you look past the thing. And I, I sometimes, honestly, and I, I don't say this in a judgmental way or a condescending or dismissive way, but I have often found myself when I've been spending times, time in nature, uh, whether it's climbers or birders or even fishermen, and, and we see something spectacular, beautiful, stunning, arresting, but those people that I'm with happen to not be Christians, not be believers in Scripture. I've actually felt, and I don't say this in a judgmental way, I'm just saying this is how I felt. I have felt sorry for them. I, I have felt a sadness in my soul that for them, the object is the total, and they have no one to thank. I mean, who do you think? Do you thank evolution? Do you thank the universe? Do you thank the cosmos? You get no one to thank, and you just see the thing almost as a, you know, a serendipitous occurrence in nature. You know, random mutation, natural selection, you give it enough time, and look, we get a Costa's hummingbird. No. You know how you get a Costa's hummingbird? You know how you get a cedar waxwing? Look up a cedar waxwing. It's one of the most beautiful creatures on God's green earth. It's, a, it's an incredible bird that looks painted. Even when you see it, when you take pictures of it, you look at it and think, am I looking at a painting or a picture? No, no, you see not only the thing, you see God behind the thing. And we should feel a kind of sadness and sorrow in our hearts for people 
that only see this earth as an end in itself and don't see the God behind the earth, the creator behind his creation. And that's the point she makes. It's so good, I'm going to read it again. The poet and the naturalist have many things to say about nature, but it is the Christian who enjoys the beauty of the earth with the highest appreciation because he or she recognizes in their father's handiwork and perceives his love in flower and shrub and tree. No one can fully appreciate. Notice she doesn't say no one can appreciate. No, you can appreciate nature. You don't have to be a Christian to appreciate nature. Not at all. But she says no one can fully appreciate, completely appreciate, appreciate as you should the significance of hill and valley, river and sea, who does not look upon them as an expression of God's love to men. And that is straight out of chapter one. Chapter one, sentence one of the whole book. Nature and scripture alike, nature and revelation alike testify to God's love. That to me is so consistent with my experience. And I tell you, as somebody who was a rock climber and a lover of nature prior to becoming a Christian, I can only say that nature has become more interesting, more beautiful, more desirable, more attractive, more worth protecting, right? I certainly have an environmentalist streak that runs right down the middle of me as a birder, you might imagine, and as a rock climber and as a fly fisherman. But I tell you, my transformation to from agnostic to believer made nature more beautiful. And I'll just use another illustration. My wife, I talk a lot about my wife. She is so beautiful to me. She is so beautiful on the outside, on the inside. I love her. I love her as a wife. I love her as a lover. I love her as a mother. But watch this. Do you know how I love her even more? When I see her as the creation of God. She's not just an end in herself. She was made by God. She, In all of the beauty that I see in her, she is reflecting in some way God's multidimensionality of beauty. So too with my children. So too with my friends. When I have friends on here, it's not because I couldn't do these all by myself. I thoroughly enjoy doing them by myself. But I want, I want to see these passages through the eyes of Ty, through the eyes of Elise, through the eyes of Nathan, right? Through the eyes of others. And it, it just, the world is a beautiful place. The world is a beautiful place. And we all know this. But only the Christian, or I should say only the theist, has someone to thank. Thank you for the Costas Hummingbird, Father. Thank you for Yosemite Valley. Thank you for the Cedar Waxwing. Thank you for the Siberian Tiger. Thank you for the Panda. Right? All right, I'm going kind of slow here. She's describing basically worldview. That's what she's describing. So you would summarize this whole first section as God speaking through nature. God speaking through his creation. God showing us himself and his beauty and his love through creation. Okay, then she says, God speaks in another way. She actually kind of goes through four ways that God speaks here. The second way that God speaks is through his providence and by his spirit. And that's what she does in the next paragraph. I'm on page 117. Better speed up a little bit. God speaks to us through his providential workings and through the influence of his spirit upon the heart. In our circumstances and surroundings and the changes daily taking place around us, we may find precious lessons if our hearts are but open to discern them, right? Open hearts, listening ear. The psalmist, and I love this. I'm reading through the psalms right now. I read Psalm 64 this morning in my personal devotions, reading a psalm a day. So I recently read Psalm 33, verse 5. In fact, I was so impressed by it that I tweeted it. I tweeted the very verse here because it jumped out to me. Let's read it. The psalmist, tracing the work of God's providence, says, The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. 
The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Whoever is wise will observe these things and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Exactly. So not only do we see God in nature, which we certainly do, and in creation, which we certainly do, but we see God in his providential openings. I, I call this when God winks, when God gives you those little indications that are unmistakable, that you know God has spoken to you, that God has opened a door, that God has given you an opportunity. God is opening up by his providence in his wonderful ways. As C.S. Lewis famously said, God whispers to us in our pleasures and shouts to us in our pain. God is speaking to us through our various experiences. He's speaking to us through nature. He's speaking to us through our family and children and social connections. All of these providential openings, God is speaking. God is speaking. And one of the key words that comes up in this chapter, it was almost my word, is listen. 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 Right? Because God is speaking in these various ways. Yes, through creation and yes, through nature, but he's also speaking through providences by his spirit. In fact, if you will just open your eyes and see, you will realize that the earth is full of the goodness of God. I mean, that's what the psalmist says in Psalm 33, verse 5. God's goodness is everywhere. You can see it everywhere in a beautiful melody, in a, in a wonderful song, in a pastel sunset, right? In a great meal. The, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Um, then she goes and spends a lot of time talking about the third way that God speaks to human beings, and that's through the Bible, right? And she basically says, and I'm not going to read this paragraph, she says, what we have in Scripture is God's interaction, the story of God's interaction, the narrative of God's interaction with the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham. And this is one of the things that we're doing in the Jacob series, which, by the way, we just began on Sabbath, so if you haven't watched that yet, please go watch it. The, the, the first episode is now available on YouTube, Jacob, the Faking, Breaking, and Making of a Man. And what we learn in the story of Jacob is that it's a story about Jacob, but it's really a story about Yahweh. It's a story about Yahweh's faithfulness, God's faithfulness. And that's what she says here. She's like, look, the Bible is full of stories. The Bible is not a textbook. The Bible is not a dictionary. The Bible is not an encyclopedia. The Bible is a storybook made up of lots of little stories like puzzle pieces that all tell a great big story. Well, what is the great big story? God's loving kindness, God's faithfulness. Old Testament promise made, New Testament promise kept in Christ. And that's what she's saying. She's like, go read the stories. See how God related. See how God worked. That's one of the reasons I wanted to do a sermon series on the life of Jacob, because God shows up in so many wonderful and remarkable ways in Jacob's life. It's just got God's goodness all over it, which means it's got the gospel all over it. It's got God's love all over that story. And she has a lot to say about taking the time to read the text. Let's read the last sentence of that Oh, no, turning the page, actually. Go to page 118, 88 of the original. Let's read the last sentence there. It says, If you would become acquainted with the Savior, study the Holy Scriptures. Yes, we can learn something about Jesus by looking at the Costa's hummingbird. And we can learn a lot about Jesus by looking at the cedar waxwing. And we can learn a lot about Jesus by going backpacking in the Wind Rivers of Wyoming. Yes, yes, yes. But all of that is seeing God through his creation. And so we intuit God's beauty. We intuit God's character. But in the text of Scripture, particularly in the New Testament, right? Particularly when you get to the New Testament, you start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, this doesn't require much interpretation because that guy, that guy that's walking around, healing, teaching, ministering, that guy's Jesus, and Jesus is God. So we don't 
you don't really have to use your imagination. You just have to read it. You just read the story. And I'm not saying that the New Testament doesn't require interpretation. Of course it does. But any person can read and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're trying to tell me this guy here, this guy here is God? Like I just opened here to John chapter 6. This guy here that's feeding all these people. Nobody, nobody brought a sandwich and this guy feeds 5,000 people with a few loaves and fishes. This guy's God? Yeah, yeah, that's God. He's awesome. He's so cool. You're going to love him. Read the rest. Read the rest of the Gospel of John. Read Matthew. Read Mark. Read Luke. And just tell yourself at every step, this person that I'm reading about is not just a really good person. He's not a guru. He's not an advisor. He's not a holy man. He's God in the flesh. That's what God looks like. That's how God acts. That's how God speaks. That's how God feels. That's God. And if you can come away from reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and think anything other than this, this is really good news. If this is God, this is really good news. If you, if you, I mean, I just think everybody would. I actually saw a survey recently, and it was kind of funny. It was like one of these Twitter polls, and somebody said, um, they did like a Twitter poll, but there was a lot of responses, I think like 25,000 responses, and somebody had, you know, they were trying to be a little creative and a little clever, and they basically said, okay, this is for atheists and agnostics only. And the question was this, if Christianity could be true, would you want it to be true? And the options were like, um, yes, no, unsure, show the results. And it was like 50-50 between yes and no, but I thought this is such a meaningless poll because when you ask people if Christianity could be true, well, man, Christianity is colored with the blood of martyrs and the blood of innocents over the last 20 centuries, right? Like, like two millennia. Christianity, what does that even mean if Christianity could be true? And I get the point. It was a clumsy, clumsily worded question, but that's not the question. Some versions of Christianity, frankly, are so repulsive to me that if I had to choose between atheism and that version of Christianity, I'd take atheism. Real talk, right? Like there are some versions of Christianity that basically say that God, for example, just to, you know, take the low-hanging fruit here, that, that God has predestined certain people to eternal conscious torment. Well, wait a minute. If you give me the choice, let's say that somebody was raised in that context, in that environment, in that Calvinistic, you know, predetermined uh, predeterminism or, or, or uh, uh, predestination. Well, I mean, come on. If you give me that option, I'm a gospel preacher, and you say to me, okay, you got options. Um, the, the kind of Christ, uh, uh, Calvin, Reformed Church, Calvinistic version of Christianity can be true, or atheism can be true. I'm taking atheism uh, because it's not beautiful. That God is not worth, that God can be feared. That God can be, you can stand in awe of that God, you can, you could respect that God, you could be afraid of that God, but you couldn't love that God. You just can't. So, so to me, this poll meant nothing. It meant absolutely nothing. But here's the much more important question. Ask people this question. Go read through Matthew or Mark or Luke or John or all of them and ask yourself this question. If there could be a God and he looked like that, that guy, would that be good news? And I guarantee your, your poll, not, not Christian history, not Christian doctrine, not Christian teaching, not Christian culture. That's not what we're talking about. Just, just if there could be a God and he looked like that guy, he treated people like that guy and he taught like that guy and he gave his life like that, all of those things, would that be a desirable universe in which to live? And I guarantee you it won't be 50-50. I don't know what it would be, but it's not going to be 50-50. 
In other words, here's another way of saying this. Anybody that's rejecting Christ is rejecting Christ out of ignorance because it's the rare person that could know what Jesus actually is, who he truly is, and reject him. And that number, I'm persuaded, is, I don't know what that percentage, but it has to be less than 10%. If people could be actually exposed to who Jesus is, so not out of ignorance, not out of culture, not out of tradition, but actually exposed to who Jesus is, the vast majority of people say, that guy? That guy? Oh, I'm taking him every day of the week. Of course. Because Jesus is the point, right? G not Doctrine's not the point. Christian history's not the point. Christian culture's not the point. Jesus is the point. So what she says here is, if you would become acquainted with the Savior, study the Holy Scriptures. Fill the whole heart with the words of God. Jump down to the last sentence of that paragraph. It is what we meditate upon that will give tone and strength to our spiritual nature. And basically, she spends a, a lot of time basically saying, and she uses a bunch of words here. I'm on page 119, page 89 of the original. Here's some of the words she uses. Solemn reflection, dwell, meditate, contemplate, meditate, fix your thoughts upon Christ, keep your Bible with you, fix these texts in your memory, meditate, fix it in the mind, concentration, prayerful study. I mean, all of this language is the language of taking time out of the hustle and bustle and busyness of life to reflect soberly and seriously and deeply on God's faithfulness in Christ. And she's like, when you do that, and she kind of goes back to the exercise analogy that we looked at yesterday, she uses another kind of quasi-exercise analogy. She says, um, this is on page 118, it is what we meditate upon that will give tone and strength to our spiritual nature. We often hear that language used in like an exercise or a physical fitness context. Tone and strength. Oh, I'm trying to tone up. I'm trying to gain strength. Well, if you want to tone up spiritually and gain strength spiritually, you'll do all of those things that I just mentioned. Dwell, solemn reflection, meditate, contemplate, meditate, fix your thoughts on Christ, um, keep your Bible with you, commit these texts to memory, meditate upon it, fix it in the mind, uh, use your concentration, prayerful study, all of that, pondered in their heart. So all of this here, and I'm not going to read through that section there, it's basically saying, make room for the text of Scripture. Nature is beautiful. Nature is awesome. We can see God in nature, right? In the ocean, in the birds, in the incredible animals that inhabit their various ecological niches. Yes, but spend time in the text. Make time to be in the text. You make time for Netflix. You make time for Instagram. You make time for Facebook. And those things in their sphere... As long as you're not allocating too much time to them, fine, fine. But make time for the text because this is of eternal consequence. Remember that thing we just did a moment ago where we allowed our imaginations, we opened the fence and we allowed our imaginations to run wild to, to try and picture what the hereafter will be like? Well, let's get ready for that, right? Let's prepare our minds for that. Let's be those old-fashioned, wholesome, traditional people that just think to themselves and believe that God is good that God is awesome and he's going to save every single person that desires to be saved and that this world is fine and good as it goes, but the stuff that really matters is the stuff of eternity. I want to be one of those people. Okay, and then, so that's sort of third. So number one, in nature. Number two, in providence. This is how God communicates with us. Number three, in scripture. And then number four, in prayer, which sets up tomorrow's chapter, The Privilege of Prayer. I'm on page 121 
And she says another way that God speaks to us is through prayer and by his spirit. So I'm reading now page 121, 91 of the original. I'm just going to read the last two paragraphs. So it's easy to find. Last two paragraphs, I'm going to read it through. Never should the Bible be studied without prayer. Before opening its pages, we should ask for enlightenment of the Holy, the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, and it will be given. When Nathanael came to Jesus, the Savior exclaimed, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said, How do you know me? And Jesus said, Ah, oh, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you even then. John 1, 47 and 48. And Jesus will see us also in the secret place of prayer. Just like every tear is noticed, every smile is marked, Jesus sees us in the place of prayer. I'll tell you a true story. I, and I'm a little, a little reluctant to say this because it's going to sound like I'm being self-congratulatory and pious, but I'm just going to tell you the truth. When I came home today, after having spent that time at the TSA, as I already described to you, the story I told you earlier about the woman and her, her daughter having died and the grandson, I literally walked into my room and I had the unction to pray for this family. And I literally just fell to my knees. I just, I just, I just kind of almost semi-collapsed to my knees, and I just poured out my heart to God for this family that I know nothing about and will maybe never see again in my life. Likely will never see this dear lady again in my life. I just felt impressed to pray, and, and as I was kneeling there praying, I was transported. I, I just was for that moment, for that brief moment, and I don't know how long I spent in prayer. It doesn't matter how long I spent in prayer. I was there for a period of time. But all of a sudden, you know how much Instagram mattered at that time? Not at all. Facebook, not at all. I don't, Netflix, I don't even have Netflix. Every time somebody says, let's watch a movie, and they turn on Netflix, it takes them like 20 minutes to try to find anything worth watching, and we just spend most of our time watching trailers anyway. I don't think there's anything good on Netflix. That's, that's my opinion. I don't have it. I'm not paying for it. But my point is, None of those things mattered. I, I was just on my knees. I just, in that moment, I had I had observed pain and joy simultaneously, and my heart went out to the situation, and I knelt and I prayed, and, and God was with me in that, as Ellen White says, that secret place of prayer. Now, we're going to talk tomorrow with our mystery, mystery guest about prayer, about what prayer is and what it isn't, and even to some degree, the mechanics of it, how it works. But God sees us in those moments. Very often, very often when I'm looking through Twitter or I'm reading some text, I will just pause and pray. Just a situation comes, just pray. I just pray over that situation. Just, just in a moment. You don't, it doesn't have to be some big formality. You can. You can get down on your knees. You can fold your hands. You can close your eyes. You can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. There's a lot right with that. But don't let those physical constraints become an obstacle to praying. You can just pray. <laughs> you can just talk to God, right? God doesn't say, well, you know, I'm going to get you on a technicality there. Your eyes were not closed. You weren't folding your hands and you didn't kneel. So I, I didn't hear that prayer. No, you can just call on the name of the Lord. And there have been, I'll, I'll give you a, a, a quick illustration here of something that, you know, this was actually quite amazing. And if you followed this, it was remarkable and if you're not in the United States of America or you don't know anything about sports, you probably don't even know about this. But probably three weeks ago now, maybe three weeks ago or something like that, there was a football game between two NFL football teams. The teams were, oh, now I'm really going to, I'm putting myself on the spot here because I wasn't planning on talking. Oh, I got it. The Cincinnati Bengals and the Buffalo Bills. And there was a player on the Buffalo Bills and his name, I think, is Damar Hamlin. Might be Devar, but I think it's Damar Hamlin. Anyway, there was a tackle, 
and it just looked like kind of an ordinary tackle on the field, actually. Um, nothing particularly, you know, forceful or violent. It just looked like a tackle. Anyway, DeMar Hamlin goes into cardiac arrest. And right there on the field, they're giving him CPR. Well, people, are, you, they're showing the players, they cut away, the ambulance comes on the field, people are crying, they're weeping, they called the game off. They've never done that before in the history of the NFL, as I understand it. So if I don't know if you followed this at all or not, but, but these stories and these tweets became some of the most circulated tweets, some of the most circulated Instagram stories ever, and it felt like there were literally multiplied tens, maybe hundreds of millions of people praying for this man because he was he was fighting for his life. And now, hallelujah, he's alive. He lived. It was a miracle. It was incredible. He was given CPR right there on the field, and he ended up... Anyway, it's a beautiful, redemptive story. And by all accounts, he seems like a decent dude. Like a He ran this um, sort of a gift, uh, gift exchange for single mothers in his neighborhood. He seems like a really decent guy. Like I, It wouldn't matter if he was a decent guy. God loves everybody, as we already read. The poor, the rich, the decent, the non-decent. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't, his life doesn't matter more because he was a decent person. His life matters because he was a child of God. But the point is, it was really remarkable. I'll tell you something I've never seen before in my life. People were praying. I prayed for this guy. As soon as I... I, I don't think I watched that. I think I just was I read about it on my, on my phone. As soon as I heard about it and understood the gravity of it, I just prayed. I just prayed. I said, Father in heaven, this man, he's fighting for his life right now. When an ambulance goes by me, I pray. I've always done that. When I hear, and I just see an ambulance going by, I just pray. I just, why not? We'll talk more about prayer tomorrow. But I'm gonna, one thing I was going to say, I saw something I've never seen before on, on television. On, I think it was ESPN, I don't know, but there was a, a host, I think his name was Dan Orlovsky, former NFL quarterback. When this situation, like in the heat of the moment, he literally says, you can find this clip on YouTube. And he's like, hey, I don't know if this is okay or not, but I'm going to pray. Did anybody else see this? It was incredible. And he says, I'm just going to bow my head and close my eyes. This is not a sports show. And he prays. And it was a, I'm going to say it, it was a beautiful prayer. And I was just like, man, this is just such a good illustration of how people know when, when we can't do anything and we're confused and we're invested, you just call in the name of God, man. You just, you just call in the name of the Lord. And I believe, and we'll see in the hereafter if I'm right or wrong, I believe that that man, DeMar Hamlet, is alive today because literally, Millions of people prayed for him, for his life, on the spot, instantly. I'm not, I'm not saying he would have died in the absence of prayer, but I just think there was no way that guy was going to die under those circumstances. It was just too many people praying with too much energy, with too much fervency. It was beautiful. So I love this idea that God sees us in the secret place of prayer, and the secret place of prayer can just be wherever you are, whatever you're doing, call in the name of the Lord. Okay, she continues, and Jesus will see us in the secret place of prayer if we will seek him for light that we may know what is truth. Angels from the world of light will be, will be with those who in humility of heart seek for divine guidance. Last paragraph. The Holy Spirit exalts and glorifies the Savior. It is his office to present Christ, the purity of his righteousness, and the great salvation that we have through him. 
Jesus says, he will take of what is mine and declare it to you, John 16, 14. The spirit of truth is the only effectual teacher of divine truth. That's true. How God must esteem, and I actually, the word value here is the synonym she's looking for. That's the word. How must God value the human race since he gave his son to die for them and appoints his spirit to be man's teacher and continual guide? The, we've talked before about the value of human beings made in the image of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That's how valuable we are. And just briefly on the Damar Hamlin story, I mean, if if million, tens of millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of people can just stop what they're doing over the course of a day while we've pled for this man's life, if that can happen for one person, it gives us a little insight. I mean, I didn't know Damar Hamlin. You don't know Damar Hamlin. 99.9% of the people that are praying don't know, but God knows right? And, and it gives us, wait a minute, one person is that important? I mean, nobody says, well, there's 8 billion people on the planet. What do we need to pray for this guy for? There's, there's still billions more. No, his life matters. Your life matters. My life matters. Every life matters. And so, oh man, I just love this. So the, the paragraph in summary is the knowledge of God. Where do we get the knowledge of God? Because God's speaking to us. How is he speaking to us? Number one, he's speaking to us in nature. And she spends, and it's beautiful, we talked about that. Number two, he's speaking to us in providential openings and opportunities. We see that earth is filled with the goodness of the Lord. Yes. Number three, God speaks to us in scripture, in the text. We see God's faithfulness. This is not a story about heroes, right? There, there are some hero stories in here. Daniel was a hero and David was a hero. But you're supposed to take away that, that Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the hero, the capital H hero behind all of the little H heroes. This is not a book about heroes. This is a book about a hero, about God, who is the great hero, the great savior, the great redeemer of humanity. That's the third way that God speaks. And then the fourth way that God speaks is through prayer. And then there's going to be a whole chapter, the next chapter, chapter 11, dedicated to prayer, what prayer is, how it works. And we're going to get into that tomorrow night. So I thought this was a great chapter. Let's quickly do our rubric, and then we'll see what your word was. And uh, I thought it was a very encouraging chapter. And I'm just going to say it again. I know I already said it, but I love that point. I just love it. Because I've had that experience so many times where when you see something beautiful in nature, you don't just see the thing. You see the Father's heart behind the thing, a heart of beauty, a heart of creativity, a heart that values human beings, a heart that values little hummingbirds, a heart that values the the world of nature. And I just love that. It just makes me feel honestly more alive. I just feel energized and, and vivified and enervated by the truth of Scripture. God is good. He is alive. He is real. And truly, the goodness of the Lord fills the earth. All right, let's go through our rubric here. Five points. The point, the person, the prayer, the practice, and the promise. For me, the point was summarized in the very first sentence. The very first sentence of this chapter says, many are the ways in which God is seeking to make himself known to us and bring us into communion with him. The point of this chapter is God is trying to communicate. And not just trying, he is effectively communicating. If we will but listen with an open heart and a listening ear, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him hear in nature. Let him hear in providence. Let him hear in scripture. Let him hear in prayer. God is speaking. Are we listening? So that's the that's that's it. The person I wrote down two things here. Number one, the obvious: God is a communicator. 
And, and think about this. God is such a communicator that the Bible literally says of him, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word, right? The name for God in John 1, describing in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. God's name is Logos, literally word. You think, well, what are the purpose of words? The purpose of words is to communicate. Well, what's the purpose of communication? To understand and be understood. So, so God is a communicator. He is the word. And the purpose of words is communication. So number one, God is a communicator. And then number two, here's something else that I just I already said it. I'm going to say it again. God is a lover of the beautiful. God is a lover. No wonder the earth is filled with so much beauty. Just a brief little sort of philosophical, theological point about this. One of the, and I wrote about this in my book, God in Pain. One of the ways that theologians and Christian philosophers have thought about evil and thought about sin is that evil and sin are not things in and of themselves. They are the absence of goodness. So that, that evil and sin have a parasitic quality. They, they possess no substance in and of themselves. They are merely the perversion of truth and beauty. Right? So, so if you see something that's, for example, a lie. A lie is not a thing. It's the absence of the truth. It's the perversion of the truth. The eclipsing of the truth. And, and all sin and all evil, even death itself, think about death. Death is not a thing. It's the absence of life. Right? Darkness isn't so much a thing as it's the absence of light. And so many a, a theologian and, and a Christian philosopher have noted that, that sin and evil have this kind of parasitic quality to them. Right? That, that they're, they're, they're not substantive in and of themselves. They're the perversion of a thing the absence of a thing, the decay of a thing. All beauty is God's beauty. I'm going to say that again. All beauty is God's beauty because Satan is not a maker of beautiful things. And sin and selfishness and death cannot create beautiful things. Any beauty that you see in the world, even if the person that created that beauty, a beautiful photograph, a beautiful song, a beautiful painting, even if the person themselves would not attribute the origin of the beauty or the inspiration of the beauty in that thing to God, it's immaterial. It doesn't matter. God made beauty. And so as a Christian, this really informs our, not only our epistemology, but it informs our methodology. It means that we can see beauty wherever it is as an indication of God's goodness and love. Even if the artist themselves denies God, it's immaterial. Because the artist, for example, take a musician, the artist didn't make the rules of melody and harmony and rhythm and all of that. No. Even in utilizing their music for selfish purposes, we can come as the observer and say, well, exactly what Joseph said about his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God meant it for good. And I tell you, friends, if you can take on this view of the world, that all beauty is God's beauty and all truth is God's truth, anytime anyone says a true thing, that is a testament to the goodness of God, even if they themselves deny the God of truth. All beauty belongs to God, and all truth belongs to God. And what this allows the Christian to do is to see, as the psalmist says in Psalm 33, verse 5, the goodness of the Lord fills the earth. Yeah, there are ugly things in the world, but those ugly things are not things in themselves. They are the perversion or the decay of the thing that is beautiful. It, I'm telling you, this idea is absolutely transformative in the way you see the world, in the way you see the arts, in the way you see relationships. 
So God is not only a communicator, number one, he is a lover of the beautiful, number two. We went on a little sort of philosophical diversion there on the nature of evil and what evil is and what evil isn't. Okay, how do we pray this prayer? Here's what I wrote. Father, give me ears to hear and eyes to see that, and you might have guessed this, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. I want to get better and better at discerning beauty, at even curating beauty. I want to see it wherever it is, and it's everywhere. So, Father, give me eyes to see. May the, may the scales fall from my eyes, and may I see your beauty everywhere. Not just in the obvious, but teach me how to find beauty in those obscure places, right? Like we talked about the little brown jobs, right? The little things that don't seem, you know, exquisitely beautiful. No, the world is a beautiful place, man. There's so much beauty. And so, Father, give me those ears to hear and those eyes to see. Okay, how do, how do we practice this chapter? Well, this is, for me, easy. Listen and look in nature, number one. Listen and look in providential openings, number two. Listen and look in scripture, number three. Listen and look in prayer. Listen and look. Listen and look in all of those four locations that she identifies here in the chapter. I'm going to listen and look in all of those places, nature, providence, scripture, and prayer, and then finally, for me, the promise, and I read it, but I'm going to read it again. 116 of types and symbols, 8687 of the original. I read it. I'm going to read it again. If we would but fully believe this, that is to say, God's goodness, God's attentiveness. Remember to the, I'll read the whole thing here, actually, just so you get it. I got to read the whole thing. He who upholds the unnumbered worlds throughout, throughout immensity at the same time cares for the wants of the little brown sparrow that sings its humble song without fear. When men go forth to their daily toil, when they engage in prayer, when they lie down at night, and when they rise in the morning, when the rich man feasts in his palace, or the poor man gathers his children around the scanty board, each is tenderly watched by the Heavenly Father. No tears are shed that God does not notice. There is no smile that he does not mark. And then she says, and here's my promise, if we would but fully believe this, what? Well, that thing I just wrote, that God is good and he is attentive to every tear, every sparrow, every smile, every man, every woman, every home, all undue anxieties would be dismissed. Our lives would not be so filled with disappointment as it is now. For everything, whether great or small, would be left in the hands of God. Hallelujah. Who is not perplexed by the multiplicity of our cares or overwhelmed by their weight. We should then enjoy a rest of soul to which many have long been strangers. Father, give me that rest of soul. What was your word? I want to know what your word was. And um, I'll be interested to see if anybody has my word. I'm actually pretty excited about my word for this chapter. And it occurs right there in the first paragraph. So I'm going to open it up there. What was your word? Whoa, 5 Carson's 05 just put up more emojis than I've ever seen in my life in a single post. Okay, Victor Mill says, beauty. Kendra says, keep. Jennifer says, rest of soul. Oh, yeah, that's good. And your word is attentive. Excellent word, Jennifer. Love you so much, sister. Revelation. Allison says, muse. Amazon Ion says, study. Hannah says, nature. Alice says, revelator. Henry says, study. Byrne says, look. Contemplate. Contemplate. Reflection. Senses. I haven't seen mine yet. Simple. Nature. Beauty. Zaza says, believe. Sabria says, speaks. Christy Michelle says, revelation. Very good. Oliver, Olivier, excuse me, says, communion. Sylvia says, invite. Very, oh, great word. 
I'm sort of with you. What does it say? I'm sort of with you. I don't have enough pens and highlighters. Exactly. Revealed, meditate, ponder, communication, invite, seek, lover, persistent. Gabby Abby says trust. Jacob says persistent. Ollie Squad says acquainted. Oh, wow, that's interesting. Stimuli. That's kind of cool. Reveals. Ears. Oh, I like that. M something says ears. Listen, reveal, study. Goodness. Oh, blessed Chuck. Study. That's good. If we'll study. I like it. I still haven't seen mine. Somebody says it's revealed. No, it's not. Good guess, though. Glory. Listen. Our 13-year-old says nature. Great word. That was my first word, so I couldn't use it again. Dig. Listen. Listen. Testimony. Nature. Listen was almost my word. Okay, there we go. Josie. Josie F. Grasso. That's my word. Communication. You said communication. I said communications in the plural. Communications. Character. Seek. Lessons, acquainted, attention, scripture, communion. Good stuff. Beautiful. Now, my word was communications. Uh, Victor says, I took the cold shower. Three minutes. Woo! Proud of you, Victor. God bless you. Keep up the good work. Do it every day for a year, even when you don't want to do it, especially when you don't want to do it. So let me just read you the first paragraph here. Okay, a few more. Recognize, submerge, pray, beauty. Okay, listen to this. Many other ways in which God is seeking to make himself known to us. This is first paragraph. Many other ways are the ways in which God is seeking to make himself known to us and bring us into communion with him. Nature speaks to our senses without ceasing. The open heart will be impressed with the love and glory of God as revealed through the works of his hands. The listening ear can hear and understand the communications of God through the things of nature. She talks about nature. She talks about providence. She talks about scripture and she talks about prayer. So my word was communications. Our God is a good God. He's a truthful God. He's a beautiful God. And happily for us, he's not playing hide and seek. He is a communicating God. This was a great session. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place, chapter 11 for our uh, guest that I'm so excited about. I'm not going to say anything more about it, but I can't wait. Same time, same place. We'll see you all tomorrow. Have a great night, and if you could remember, just whisper a little prayer for this dear sister that I met today and her husband and grandson, Mike. Um, just lift them up before the Lord. He is attentive to them. He knows their needs and situation, but it would just mean the world to me, and I know it would mean a lot to Jesus if you would just whisper their name. Even now, just lift them up, and let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you for this beautiful chapter. Thank you that you are reaching out to speak to us, to communicate to us in the beauty of nature and in scripture and in providence and in prayer. And Father, I, I want to pray again for this dear sister that I had the privilege of meeting today. You know her name. I'm not saying her name here publicly, though I remember it. But you know her name and you know the situation. Father, this is a family that no doubt has experienced great pain with the loss of their daughter. And then now, Lord, the difficulty of, of raising a, a grandchild that has lost a, a, a mom. And so, Lord, I just want to pray that you will please be with them, be with that family, be with all of us, Father. The world is filled with sorrow, but it is also filled with beauty. Help us to trust you with the sorrows. Take away our undue anxieties and disappointments. But, Father, help us to see, to see more clearly and to hear more perfectly that the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Father, we love you and thank you. Thank you for this little book that packs such a powerful punch. Father, these really are steps to Christ, steps in and with Christ. 
Father, I pray that as we come out the other end of this book, just a couple more chapters to go, 11, 12, and 13, that we would be better equipped to walk with Jesus, walk in Jesus, and continue to walk to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.